We come now to a time of hearing God's word preached. And today we'll be considering Psalm 130. So please turn to Psalm 130. We will read the whole chapter. It's eight verses. This is God's word. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who, can, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And as we consider this, um, we ask, would you light our path? And you, will you grant that it will be a lamp to our feet? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Uh, let me begin by asking a question. How do you deal with your sins? How do you deal with your sins? I want you to think about that question and answer it uh, by yourself. In an honest way, think about it. When you sin, what do you usually do? Instinctively, what's your first response when you realize that you have sinned against the Lord? This is a psalm that helps us to know how we ought to deal with our sins. Whether it's Christmas or the New Year's Eve, it doesn't matter the time of the year that it is. I think this is a very important question to ask yourself because it's a question of eternal significance. If you get this wrong, we might end up uh, at the end of the day into eternal misery and ruin. So that's, that's the question to you as we begin uh, looking at this psalm. How do you deal with your sins? Now, Psalm 130 here um, begins in verse 1 
by the psalmist calling to God. And the psalmist here is depicted as being in depths. Verse 1, it's clear there. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Now, what are these depths that the psalmist here is referring to? What condition is the psalmist in that he would describe it as depths? When we look at uh, what the psalmist focuses on in the rest of the chapter, it will be clear to us that the psalmist's sins are what uh, is bothering him. In verse 2, he pleads with God to hear his pleas for mercy. But mercy for what exactly? And verse 3 now gives us the answer to that question. Verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And here he is contemplating his fate if his sins are not forgiven. If that was the case, if God were not to forgive his sins, he would fall into the dreadful situation of experiencing God's judgment. And in verses 7 to 8, he then points God's people to the plentiful redemption that is in God. God will forgive all their iniquities. And so, what is really troubling the psalmist's soul in this psalm is iniquity, is sin. And this then gives us an insight into what kind of depths the psalmist is in. He is in the depths of sin and its consequences. It is illuminating again to uh, just look at the psalm and see how he described uh, his sinful condition. Uh, he does not regard it as a small mistake. He does not see his sins as a little uh, oversight on his part. He's seeing the sins that he is committing as plunging him into depths. He is seeing that his sins have put him in a deep hole, full of darkness, full of misery. And even when we consider at other passages in Scripture that talk about depths, we would see that that word depths is a metaphor that is used to describe one who is in adversity and trouble. For example, in Psalm 69, verse 1 and 2, there the psalmist is crying out to God, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. 
I sink deep. I sink, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from, my, from the deep waters. So clearly from Psalm 69 verse 1 and 2, the psalmist is worried. He's anxious. He's in distress. He's disquieted. And the expression that he uses, he says that he is in the depths or he's in deep waters. He's sinking in deep mire. Now I say all this to simply say that the depths of sin that the psalmist is conceiving himself to be in is a situation that is causing him great concern. He's not indifferent to his sins. He sees that this sin, he does not tell us the specific sin that is in mind here, but whatever sin it may be, has plunged him into deep trouble. Now we ask this question, what trouble does sin bring? Or what kind of trouble does the psalmist perceive that his sins have plunged him into? And verse 3 uh, gives us the answer of the kind of trouble he is in. That if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who will stand? If God will judge you according to your sins, will you stand? That is the question. And the obvious answer is that none, none of us will be able to stand. And that should cause us great concern. If that was everything that there is, that God will deal with you only according to how your sins deserve. That is surely a reality that should cause you trouble. It causes you to be in distress and worried and wonder, what will become of me? Now notice this. Who is this who is judging the sins? Who is this who is to mark iniquities? It is, if you look at verse 3, it is the Lord. It is the Lord, Lord, actually. Not repeating here myself, because when you look at verse 3, you would see that the first Lord is capitalized, all of it. Right? But the second one, it's small letters. 
only the first uh, letter is capitalized. Have you ever wondered why do the translations usually do this uh, kind of thing? Why, why not just translate it either as capital, all of it, or as it is in the second place? And, and the reason why that is done, it's because those are two different names of God that reveal to us different aspects of the nature of God. It's important that we pay keen attention to this way that the translators have captured here so that we do not miss the full intent of the meaning that the Spirit is communicating to us. We believe that every word in Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this includes our understanding of these names of God. Now, when Lord is translated in small letters, only the first capitalized, the name of God that is in view here is Adonai. This name tells us that God is the one who has absolute sovereignty over all creation. God's sovereignty in this sense means that all of us here of necessity are required to worship and serve him and only him. And this is what will happen in the end of history when all people in heaven and hell will confess him as Lord. As Philippians 2, 10 to 11, clearly tells us. Since this is God's universe, since this is his own universe, all who are in it ought to live according to his terms. He's the one who created it and knows what is best for all of us. If we live in light of his commandments, that means flourishing for us. But if we don't, we are setting up ourselves for trouble with him. He is a just sovereign who takes every form of rebellion with eternal seriousness and sees every form of rebellion as deserving eternal punishment. Now, here I'm already hitting at what trouble the psalmist sees himself in because of his sins. Because who is marking iniquities? It's Adonai. But what of the other name? Lord in capital. This is the name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush theophany in Exodus chapter 3. If we can read uh, that narrative from verse 13, there is where I want us to concentrate. So if you, if, if you could turn to Exodus chapter 3, you begin reading verse 13. That's the account of the burning bush where God has appeared 
to Moses and is about sending to Egypt to rescue the Israelites. From verse 13, we read, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Here is where God reveals this name, Lord, in capital letters, which translates to Yahweh. And it's this word, this uh, name, I am, who I am. Now imagine if you asked somebody, what is your name? Then they responded, I am who I am. You'd wonder, stop playing games with me. Seriously, who are you? Um, but I don't think that was God's intent. He is not evading Moses' question here. He is not trying to trick Moses in any way. He is truly revealing himself to Moses because that's the essence of God telling Moses what his name is. He is disclosing his nature to Moses by telling him that he is, I am. What does that mean? It simply means this, that God is. God is. God does not change. God does not come into being. He does not go out of being. He is. Yeah, now you can think about it this way. And it's something that our mind begins now stumbling because we are considering the very essence, the very nature of who God is. For us as human beings, we are always changing. Once upon a time, I was a kid. I became a teenager. As time moved on, I became an adult. I hope that in future, I'll become an old man. Now you see, as I'm describing myself, there is constant change. I was, I became, I am becoming. That is the nature of we as, we, as human beings. But what about God? He is. He does not change at all. His being is constant. His existence, he does not derive it from anything else or on anyone else apart from himself. He is self-existent. He exists from eternity to eternity. He is the Alpha and Omega. 
I think in Psalm, another word that comes to mind that just wraps this whole nature of God together is His holiness. His utter uniqueness. We cannot begin to compare Him with anything else. This is the I am that we all must stand before. And even thinking about his holiness and those people who have come into the presence of God's holiness. As Moses was in this burning bush experience, we are told that he was afraid when he realized that it is God who had appeared to him. Thinking about even Isaiah chapter 6 and that glorious vision that Isaiah had of God. We have these perfect angelic beings, no sin at all, but they dare not look at the radiance of the holiness of God. They cover their faces, they cover their feet. And when the prophet, one whom we would think is the most righteous person in Israel, beholds this glory of the Lord proclaims that he is a man of unclean lips and dwells within a nation of unclean lips. And I think that is why in Isaiah 64 he would say that even our righteousness are as filthy rags. So this is the God that the psalmist has in mind. If the great I am, the sovereign God would mark iniquity. Wouldn't anyone of you stand? The answer is none. None will stand. We all will be liable to his just punishment. I think we need to think more about this punishment that our sins deserve. It will help us to understand the gravity of sin and therefore the trouble and the magnitude of the depths that the psalmist was in. Now, the way the scriptures describe God's judgment is nerve-wracking. Various metaphors are used and when we put all this together, one acknowledges that there is a mystery concerning it. We can know something about God's judgment through the various images and symbols that are given to us, but not fully. For example, one example that we can look at is in Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14, beginning from verse 9. And in this chapter, we have two imageries of this judgment that God will bring upon unbelievers, those who have sinned and have not repented or believed in his Son. From verse 9, We are told that another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, 
If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is one picture that we are given of that judgment, that great judgment that God will bring upon sinners at the end of history. I try to imagine what does it mean for one to be tormented with fire and sulfur. I can only imagine. And this not one day, but forever and ever with the smoke that comes from this torment of fire and sulfur going up forever and ever. What really is this image? We can only begin to comprehend something about it, but to wrap our minds fully is a difficult thing. It only goes to show the greatness of the punishment that God will bring upon sinners. And again, as the chapter is coming to a close from verse 17, another picture is given to us. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. It's a graphic image here of the kind of judgment that God is bringing upon sinners. Can you imagine? That God says that he will step on them, trade upon them, like they used to do in the ancient days with grapes, so that that juice might be squeezed out of it so that they might make wine. And now this is the almighty God doing this very thing to sinners. And the blood flows for over 290 kilometers. What a dreadful, dreadful picture of the judgment that will befall sinners. At least this one should help us to understand that sin is not small. There are no small sins. Sin is serious. Every sin deserves this kind of punishment. God grant sinners a fitting, fitting judgment. It is 
the kind of punishment that sin deserves. Nothing less, nothing more. Sin is so evil and wicked that no other kind of punishment will be conceivable. Why do I say this? It is because if sin had its way, it would dethrone God. Sin ultimately wants to take the place of God. It won't be content with any other position. It must do everything it can so that God would cease to be God. That's what sin is in essence. That's what our sin is in essence. And this kind of high-handed rebellion that sin is, that our sin is, surely deserves no other kind of punishment. How can a worm such as me, such as you, want God to be dead? The sovereign who created you, the great I am who sustains your life every day, why would one like the grain of sand think of the cells greater than God? What sort of evil is this? Sin knows no end and knows no bound. Sin is infinitely evil, and hence every sin deserves the everlasting punishment of God. And the psalmist surely is thinking of his sins in this serious manner, considering who God is and what his justice demands. And if God will treat him as his sins deserves, this is what the psalmist would be signing up for. So, I think by now we appreciate this depth that the psalmist felt concerning his sins. If one realizes that this is the situation that they are seeing, puts them, they won't be indifferent about their sins. They would, with everything they've got, cry unto God for salvation, just like the psalmist does here in the first few verses of the psalm. He is crying with everything that he, got, he, he has to God, to be merciful to him. How then can the psalmist be able to come out of such depth? And the next verse tells us the way through which the psalmist will be rescued. That is verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, there are no better words to say to the one who feels tormented and overwhelmed by their sins. It's right for you to feel overwhelmed by your sins. But it will be wrong for you to continue in this state all the while. One must come face to face with this reality. With God, there is forgiveness that he may be feared. As great as our sins are before God, he still forgives them. This is a remarkable thing, and that's why his forgiveness here is terrifying. Anyone who has received the true mercies of God trembles. He fears the Lord. There is this reverence. Many times we don't take our sins seriously, and that's why we don't appreciate the weightiness of God's mercies upon us. But the psalmist here tells us that with God there is forgiveness that he may be feared. How is it that such a great sinner as I am can be forgiven? That's the question that one asks himself once they have come to a reality, to a realization of what their sins really are before the thrice holy God. Who am I that you should forgive me, a sinner, vile, such as I am? God does forgive. If you feel that your sins have made you stink and you are unworthy, there is no good thing that can proceed from you. Such are the kind of people that God loves to extend his mercies to. As Romans 5, verse 6 to 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What manner of love is this? Christ did not come to save the righteous, those who have all their lives put together. He came for weak, ungodly, sinful people. God forgives our sins and in a way that is perfectly in line with his justice. He does not set his justice aside or compromise on it in order to forgive you 
This would have been a mon monstrous thing to do. It will be an evil thing to do. If God will have to compromise on his justice in order to forgive you. And it's really a dilemma here. If God is this holy, if God is this just, how does he forgive sins? Think, of, think, of, think about it this way. Imagine the most heinous crime that one can do to your friend that you deeply love. For example, let's say one murders and molests a child and this guy is caught and arraigned in court. Then in the hearing, it is clearly established that this is the man. All the evidence points to the direction that this man is guilty. He is the one who molested this child, is the one who killed this child. And in the uh, giving of the judgment, the judge says something like, today I woke up feeling really good. I just feel like I should be merciful today and forgive this guy. Mister, you're free to go. What would be your reaction? Something is not right with this guy, right? Where is justice? Where is justice for this child? Where is justice for the family? It will enrage you. It will make you angry. This is not the right thing to be done. Now, do you see the, the dilemma this brings when God says he forgives sin? If he just grants forgiveness on the basis of feelings, I feel like doing it, let me just do it. It will be no different than this judge. It will be the same thing. No justice at all. It will be unjust. It will be an unjust forgiveness. And rightly so. But the question is, how then does God offer forgiveness to you and me in a manner that is in line with his justice? And the text that I quoted above from Romans 5 gives the answer. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for sinners. Christ, the Messiah, the Holy Son of God, did this. What a glorious salvation this is that the one who made you would come and become like us in every respect, live the righteous life, and die the death of sinners. 
That death on the cross was so that he might fulfill the justice of God. Think about it. Think about it. This wrath that we have read in Revelation, this judgment that you deserved for eternity, all of it, all of it based on Christ on the cross and him bearing it all. What a terrifying sight this is to behold the justice of God being fulfilled. As he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why was that happening? It was because justice, God's justice had to be met. Your salvation, as was said in the morning, does not come cheaply. It cost God to send his son to die on the cross. If it was possible for angels to fully take the wrath of God, he would have sent them. But so that we might get the right, me uh, the right measure of the nature of sin, it is only the second person of the Trinity who could satisfy fully the anger of God that our sins deserve. How these Psalms puts it so well. With God, there is forgiveness that he may be feared. Here at the cross, we come face to face with God. Anyone who would desire to experience true forgiveness from their sin must come to see God as the sovereign one, the one who is the thrice holy God in all his dealings with man. When God forgives, his forgiveness is clothed with his holiness. When he extends his mercies, they come in the full weight of the holiness of God. When he loves us, he loves us with the intensity of his holiness. All of God's acts are clothed with his holiness. And that is why, that is why a true experience of God, even when he is doing good, to you, fills us with dread. It causes us to tremble. It causes us to fear Him. Now, in verse 5 to 6, here He tells us about that long. That he has to God. This merciful, gracious, loving God who forgives sin. He longs deeply for this God. There is this constant, patient, persistent waiting on the Lord. Let me say this in a way of application to believers. 
You have known the fearful mercies of the Lord, but yet for some reason this is not currently the same. And maybe because you have sinned against the Lord, and therefore you lack an assurance that your sins are forgiven. What this psalm is teaching us here is to hold on, hold in there, wait on God, plead with Him, cry to Him in the words of this psalm. He hears, and in the appointed time, He will visit you with His fearful mercies. And I think also, on another, in another sense, we all ought to wait on God to grant us fresh glimpses of the wonder and the greatness of His mercies. Let us not be content with knowing God in His mercies in the same way that we knew it when we first believed. This longing for God does include longing for the increase of our knowledge of Him. We pray and long to see the fearful masses of God just as watchmen wait for the morning. That is the call for us here in verse 5 and 6. It would seem that the Lord had delayed answering the prayer of the psalmist, but he pressed it. He knew, he knew that for sure my God is merciful. He knew for sure my God is full of forgiveness. And even though I don't feel like it right now, I hold him there. I still call upon him until when I will fully experience the riches of his mercies yet again. And in the final verses now, he, that is in verse 7 and 8, this hope that he has in God, he calls on God's people into it. They steadfast love with the Lord. God displays this by forgiving his people all, all their sins. And nothing, no sin is left in that all. Every sin that his people commit, he does forgive. And he does say that there is plenty redemption. He just show us that his love and his mercies are that great as far as the East is from the West. Indeed, behold, what manner of love that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And we are his children, not by natural birth, not by our own wills or making, but by the supernatural outworking of the Spirit in our lives, in granting us faith and repentance towards our God. And this is the way we come to experience these terrifying mercies of our God. So as I began, 
So I end by asking you, how do you deal with your sins? Do you deal with them just like the psalmist has demonstrated for us here? Do you come to seriously consider your sins in light of who God is and see that they deserve the weight of eternity, the weight of eternal punishment? Do you tremble at the fact that you sin? Does that cause you to cry out with everything that you've got to God? Oh, please, God, forgive me. Or is it just a quick and disinterested prayer? Lord, forgive me. And that's it. At the very heart of hearts, is it God, the merciful, fearful God that you're communing with, even when you're asking and pleading for forgiveness? How do you deal with your sins? Do you deal with them biblically? Do you deal with them just like the psalmist does in this portion? Do you cry out to God and only Him to forgive you and to grant you His mercies? How do you deal with your sins? I want to plead with those in our midst who are yet to know Christ. A simple question that I ask you is this. If you die today, are you certain that you spend eternity with God? Do you know for certain that your sins are forgiven? Now, if you have zero confidence in answering these questions affirmatively, you don't know Christ as the Savior of sins. And this is a terrible position to be in. At any moment, at any moment, you will pass into an eternity away from God forever. We know not the time when we leave this earth, but one thing that is certain is that you will die someday. That we are sure of. What then, I ask, what then are you doing with your life outside Christ? Are you going to use your time to offend God? All the more and pile your misery in hell? All the more? Now, God has granted you life and the desire to come to church because he's patient with you does not want you to perish in your sins. In fact, he says that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. I beseech you in, the, in view of the mercies of God. I beseech you, I plead with you, repent and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Repent, turn away from your sins and turn to Christ and follow him unreservedly. Believe in him, trust in him, lean on him with all your weight as the only one who can rescue you from the depths of your sin.
This is salvation and is freely offered for you in the gospel. Freely receive it for the salvation of your soul. Shall we pray? O oh Lord, our God, we We bow before you this afternoon and confess that you are holy, so holy. Lord, forgive us for we have not even thought of you as holy. We have made light of you even when we are confessing our sins. We have not seen sin as you see sin. We have weighed it with our feelings. We have weighed it in accordance with what the society says, but not in accordance with your word, and therefore have trivialized sin. Our prayer this afternoon is that you would once again grant us a fresh understanding of the nature of sin, of the gravity of sin and its consequence, that we will see that every sin plunges us into depth that knows no end. And Lord, that we would see the greatness and the bigness of your mercies towards us, and tremble before you, and fear you, O Lord, even when you do us good. Lord, we pray that if there is anyone here who is yet to experience your fearful mercies, that you grant them, that you will grant this to them by the power of your Spirit. We pray of all this in Christ's name. Amen.